0: welcome to another episode of the untangling web3 podcast today we're honored to have richard baker joining us on the show richard's mission is to engineer a smarter financial world with blockchain and as founder and ceo of tokenovate he's doing just that as a serial founder and CEO, Richard brings a wealth of experience to the Web3 world with a background in tech and financial services spanning over two decades. Richard, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show.
1: Thank you, Jack. Hello, Alec. How are you both?
2: Good to see you. I'll speak for both of us. <laughs> we are just not <laughs> duplicating any effort. We're both great. Very good. Very excited to have you on. I feel like this has been in the pipeline for a little while now. So yeah, it's exciting to have you on. How are you doing today, Richard?
1: Yeah, really good. I'm an avid follower of the show. So I've also been excited to get on here and chat with you both. So yeah, this should be interesting today. But yeah, everything's going well.
2: Good. I'm glad that makes you my mom. I think so. We've got three three listeners so far. That's good to know. I think my mom will be next on the show. Yeah, it's great to get you on, Richard. (laughs) Perfect. Jack obviously mentioned a little bit about your background. I know you've been in the space for a while now, but could you give us a little bit of an intro into your early career and then eventually we'll get on to what led you into Web3?
1: Definitely. My my children tend to glaze over when I start this bit of my story, Alex, so I'm going to watch you both very carefully. Uh, Firstly, I'm Irish by background. You can hear a Southern Irish accent, County Cork. I grew up in Southern Ireland. Uh, moved to the UK when I was 15, 16 and uh, headed off to college to do electronics and communication engineering, which was actually within the uh, Merchant Navy. So I qualified as a radio officer. So I love radio systems and transmission systems. That was my early days. Believe it or not, my first job out of college was in UK manufacturing. I went to work as a service engineer and then a CAD CAM design engineer in UK manufacturing. So what does that mean? I was actually working on punch presses and laser machines and pick and place Mm -hmm. machines. And all of that was control electronics. And that was my area of expertise. I think probably a founder CEO that I worked with way back then in a small mid-sized company as an engineer was the reason I ended up pivoting into product and sales Mm -hmm. and, and heading down a more commercial path. But he's also the origin of why I think I Look at systems the way I do. He used to drag me out of my office when I was designing product and get me to walk the shop floor and go, look at your design. Can this guy put the rivets in? Can this guy put the wiring loom in? Mm. Can this guy finish the product in the way that you'd expected. And I used to find inevitably that, no, my design hadn't worked. And <laughs> so I had to reverse engineer. So I got to learn the hard way about the importance of understanding the value chain and making sure you understood what you were, what you were designing and its impact downstream. Okay, um... That's where I started. Then really a corporate career from there, went to work for Nortel Networks, the Canadian equipment manufacturer, had almost 10 years with Nortel in their optical transmission team. Um, Mm. And this is the bit where my children go, no, 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 I don't want to listen, which is uh, we were building the backbone of the Internet, frankly, in the 90s and early 2000s. So we were building huge SDH networks and optical networks, Mm. more or less in every country. Nortel was in a phenomenal position. We had almost 70 percent market share of optical way back then. And all of that infrastructure is in the ground today. You know, those are the backbones to data centers. Uh, love that. And obviously, it was the heady days of dot com and a big boom mm. time. It was great fun.
2: That's really exciting. I think there's two things that I latch onto there. One is you're quite clearly a generalist, which I think is extremely important for Web3. Web3 and blockchain is so much about finding opportunities, existing problems in certain industries. And I think sometimes you need that kind of generalist mindset to be able to actually apply blockchain and Web3 principles into problems today in certain verticals and certain horizontals as well. The other thing, is building the backbone of the internet that probably leads me on (laughs) quite nicely to the next question is so what led you into the world of web3 i
1: I guess actually it's happened by stealth or a process of osmosis if i'm really honest i don't think i set myself a goal of getting into web3 and building a business in web3 i I think of myself as a bit of a chameleon of markets because i Mm. came out of telecoms went into digital media for a few years so streaming and video Then founded my own financial services company in 2010, which was a futures exchange in Singapore regulated in the traditional finance market for Mm -hmm. trading commodities. And we got that regulated in Europe and the U.S. But building that business, actually, we were involved in some technologies that were all about sending the trade to clearing houses and those message formats and those particular protocols and gateways were pretty cumbersome to work with not very efficient very slow and it was in 2015 I was looking at overhauling the back end of that business and started to investigate blockchain and I think it was it was at that point that that technology really resonated with me and I stayed tracking it really from 2015.
0: Okay so you've been in the space a while then Okay, <laughs> that, that is quite a long career in web3 right?
1: Yeah, I think in a way it's kind of shaping up now, that that is a long time. I've seen it through different iterations, I guess. And as we unpick this today, I'm going to probably always rest on engineering principles and everything I talk about. But I believe very strongly in foundational protocols. I saw it in my telecoms days in the 90s. And so I think really important to really the backbone of any commerce or value exchange system is do you have trusted protocols and is the medium of that technology going to be here in 50 years, 100 years to continue to rely Mm. on. I see it in optical and transmission systems and the TCPI layer as it is. But I think for what we're thinking about the future of the Web3 is going to be, it starts with a really trusted, solid foundation. And that's certainly a design principle into Tokenovate in the way that we founded that business.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you're talking about it in terms of this kind of infrastructure foundational layer, right? Mm-hmm. We often talk about blockchain and lots of the other technologies and Web3 as being like plumbing, right, to improve trust in various industries. Now, obviously, you're coming at this now from the financial services industry perspective, right? What about that industry do you think is particularly applicable to blockchain? Why is blockchain mm-hmm. well suited to solve challenges in that industry? Because it's not one that I'm particularly familiar with or Alec is, I think so, but you've obviously got the expertise there.
1: Uh, Well, thank you. It's very generous, Jack. But okay, so firstly, maybe just for the listeners, uh, Tokenivate's in traditional finance, so referred to often as financial services. I think financial services has many different faces. So it's got a number of subcategories. Tokenivate particularly is focused on the capital markets side of financial services. And even within that category, we specifically focus on the role of derivative trading. So that, that's our use case for tokenovate uh, And what we're doing within derivative trading is really looking at the supply chain, the value chain of how price is discovered, how prices come together to be formed as orders, how those orders get matched in broker systems or on exchange venues, at which point they become a legally formed trade. And then we're really looking at the trade management workflow process from that point onwards in terms of how is it treated in the trading party systems, but also their intermediaries and all the way downstream to clearing houses and reporting
2: venues. Richard, just to jump in there, TradFi is a convoluted complex things. Can you just explain some of those like derivatives, trading, all this kind of stuff, like derivatives specifically, what is that? And then we can try to work out what some of the problems are, you know, you're solving.
1: Yeah. So a derivative in its simplest form is a risk management product. It's a financial contract, but derivatives around the world are largely used to hedge risk. So I won't necessarily expand on it too much, but I don't think there's anything in our daily lives that aren't underpinned or backed with some form of a derivative hedging out supply chain risk or Mm -hmm. a commodity price risk or an interest rate risk. So whether, whether it's a bond or a cash instrument, Behind the scenes, derivatives are used by banks, by asset managers to fundamentally help them risk manage
0: exposures and manage their portfolios. What kind Um, of risk, Richard, would that be? I'm interested. Is there a a kind of concrete example you have of where these might be used? Well, in
1: in a simple form, if I go back to my old life building the exchange, we were trading commodities. What does that mean? One of the instruments that started or one of the asset classes sorry, that started was something called iron ore. And so what's iron ore for? Well, you dig it out of the ground in Australia or South Africa or Brazil. It has a particular metal fines content. um, But for a lot of steel mills in China, that's a core ingredient. So into a smelting process, a big pot on a hot fire, you would put iron ore into the pot and you would put something called coking coal into the pot. And then after it's done its magic, you tip the pot over and you get really hot steel and So the backbone of our construction around the world of buildings and railways and what have you relies on that process. So in that example, if a steel mill is buying iron ore from Australia, it has to come out of the mine. It has to come across a rail network to get to the port. It has to go into a ship, a dry bulk ship, and then has to go on its journey on the seas up to the Chinese port. And when it gets to the Chinese port, it has to queue and wait to get into port to be unloaded. So in that, there's just time risk You know Mm -hmm. that could take. A couple of months to several months for that to play out. But of course, the mill wants to buy at a certain price and protect that price. So they would use an iron ore derivative to risk manage or hedge the price at that point in the future that they're expecting delivery.
2: Okay, that makes sense. So it's like a bet between two parties on what the price will be at a later date.
1: Yeah, I was going to default to my football team, Alec, West Ham, and go to go to the analogy of spread betting, but I don't want to alienate the audience <laughs> too early.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure what our demographic is. I'm not sure if we're all Chelsea fans or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm sure. I don't think any football fans probably. So I was going to say, so what are some of the problems in this space you're seeing right now? Derivatives, obviously, it's a huge market in the trillions, I assume. What are some of the problems that we're seeing right now, present day in TradFi in this space?
1: Yeah, it is a big market. It's uh, just over $600 trillion globally. As I mentioned earlier, it covers a lot of different product types. I think what's really exciting here is we've seen traditional finance really start to pay attention to this disruptive technology that is blockchain, the concept of tokenization, but Uh, We'll we'll come to that in a little while. So why? Right now, there is an increasing amount of regulatory oversight and rules and governance that are upon that industry. And that's everything from how much cash you have to hold on your balance sheet. And if you're holding lots and lots of cash on your balance sheet to try and meet particular capital adequacy rules, Mm -hmm. that's less that you can actually allocate to a trade. Mm -hmm. And if you're allocating less to a trade, it means there's less orders in the market, there's less liquidity and that has an impact on market prices of particular products. So you've got rules and regulations that are really impeding liquidity, if you like, in the market And, and, and that gets quite intricate very quickly because there are different rules that affect pension funds from asset managers, from banks. So when I enter a derivative trade, since really the financial crash of 2008, we saw some very sizable regulatory change happening around the world. It all started to come into practice in 2013 and has been growing ever since then. But it really means that there must be a lot more transparency in the system. Um, And that is everything from the ticker tape or the trade tape that runs every day needs to be a lot more accurate and a lot more visible. All trades should be reported. To increasingly, well, you and I, Alec, are not really permitted or encouraged anymore to trade between each other bilaterally, mm-hmm. we should mm-hmm. really be using a central counterparty, which is known as a clearinghouse. We should mm-hmm. novate our trade to a clearinghouse so that the, the clearinghouse can provide some risk management and mm-hmm. assurity around that trade. So it's all of those complications that adds lots of intermediaries, mm-hmm. lots of disparate individual workflow patterns, lots of rekeying of information. And frankly speaking, during COVID. A lot of the big banks, a lot of the financial services industries found out just how dependent their mid and back office workflow processes are on people and Mm. people knowing what to do. And so we saw time to clear a trade go up during COVID. And that's shone a spotlight on, you know, we need to make these systems a lot more efficient. Long answer, but it's a complicated industry.
0: Yeah, no, that's really useful. And I think now it's the connection with Web3 and blockchain is becoming more clear in my head, because we talk about Web3 as a technology to improve efficiency, right? And there, you're saying you want to maximize the amount of capital you can allocate to the position you want to take in the market, rather than all these other extraneous places where you might lose your money, hedging other sort of forms of risk or the inefficiencies inherent in the system. I want to come on then to what are you doing at Tokenova, Okay, because You've mentioned this word, Novate, and I noticed that's in the <laughs> title. I'm sure this is related to how we're combining tokens and Novation, if that's the right word. So, yeah, can you give us a, a kind of overview of what you are doing with TokenOvate?
1: <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you've you've characterized it well, Jack. That was a quirky brand created out of could we tokenize the legal reference of, no, uh, of Novation? So Novation, as I just explained, when Alec and I entered into that really big trade, really... We're not permitted to do that without having significant cash on our balance sheets to mitigate each other's risks. So we're encouraged now to take on board a central counterparty, a clearinghouse. And so we would novate our trade to the clearinghouse, to the central counterparty. So what we are really looking at now is what is the role of digital ledger technology and tokenization and digital assets, digital custody? in really greasing the wheels and making that process a lot more elegant, a lot more efficient, improved accuracy, improved transparency. And that's really what tokenovates working on. We refer to it as a lifecycle engine mm. because there is a particular pattern of a, a pre-trade set of events to a post-trade set of events that any trade will go through. And we're really just automating all of those business processes and those events so that we can more efficiently novate the risk the obligations for all of those parties
2: okay so it's part of that to kind of i don't know if the word is replaced we had to say the word replace maybe facilitate the clearinghouse's job because what you're saying effectively is rather than two parties being able to interact peer-to-peer they're both reliant on this clearinghouse to manage risk and manage assets and all this kind of stuff and obviously that's a, an easy application of blockchain to transparently show the world what assets you have <clears throat> is that part of the sell here it is, yeah, very much so.
1: However, there is a parallel journey here, Alec, which is, mm-hmm. I think, with the invention of blockchain technology and certainly the application of blockchain through the lens of cryptocurrencies in the last 10 years. You know, that as that a use case, cryptocurrency has shone a light on all kinds of new concepts that traditional finance can start to play around with and apply to their business. And so, you know, one of those, for example, is when we're in a cryptocurrency world and an asset is. Natively created on a chain and it's it's effectively a, a token that token can be held in digital custody mm-hmm. and so when you look at the role of a traditional clearinghouse in financial services and you look at the role of a custodian a digital custody provider, I think we're going to see over the next five to ten years emerging of those duties and those responsibilities yeah and so I, I think the technology has also given rise to Okay. Well, how how does a clearinghouse actually automate and start to think about digital custody as part of their clearing services? And we're certainly seeing a number of clearinghouses doing that.
2: Right, yeah. So I think
1: Web3 technologies start to influence this whole capital markets ecosystem quite richly, actually.
2: Yeah. That's a really interesting point. It's one thing that I always ask when it comes to tokenization. Obviously, by having these native tokens on a blockchain, we solve the double spend problem. We have uniqueness in a way, which is really important. But then how do you match that to a real world asset, for example? And is your point there that it's the clearinghouse's job to effectively be the custodian of that and match that? Is that what you're saying there? No,
1: not necessarily, unfortunately. Even in that today, if you and I represent some corporate entities, Mm -hmm. we would traditionally have a custody bank or an, an asset servicing company they're often referred to but we would probably have our bonds and our certificates and some of our cash on 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 hold with an existing custodian what we're really doing then is moving assets in and out of that custodian in accordance with the trade commitments that we're making on a daily basis or the trade maintenance more particularly that we're having to do on a daily basis and that cycle of trade maintenance is where we would have the relationship in maintaining that trade that we've got at the clearinghouse. So certainly clearinghouses are exploring their role and their Mm -hmm. evolution to compress these cycles and reduce time to settlement and and Mm -hmm. find efficiencies. But we're also seeing those asset servicing businesses, those custodian banks also doing that. And I think there's an interesting battle as to when actually all assets are digitized through the concept of Web3 technologies. And I've taken time risk out of the trade because really a clearinghouse is is there today because there is, from the time that we execute, anything up to two to five days uh, to enable the settlement to the clearinghouse and for monies to have moved around appropriately. Well, let's now compress that to, let's say, under an hour. If I've got it under Mm -hmm. an hour on a blockchain and it's all tokenized and I've moved through digital custody, I think we will see real efficiencies and that will cast a light on... Uh, how much risk
0: management do I need to be done by the clearinghouse? It's good. Maybe sometimes we can be a little bit too high level on this show. So I think it's good to go into the details, you know, needing to have better tracking of the whole life cycle of executing these derivatives trades. I'm interested. So I kind of did a little bit of background research on what Tokenovate does. And I see a few different terms that I, I would like you to maybe help disambiguate for me or explain how they work. So you emphasize this idea of automation, which makes perfect sense to me. You want to make these things more automated in general. You want to re- reduce sources of human error. That makes sense. Then you also talk about smart contracting and also smart legal contracts, which I'm interested in. So often when we talk about smart contracts, we can be talking about Ethereum typically, right? How smart contracts are these living entities on the blockchain. Is that what you're referring to when you talk about smart legal contracts? Or is that something different? And if so, how does that differ?
1: Yeah, perfect question. Yeah, so I I guess maybe dealing with tokenization first. So what we are working on and what we see is, I think if if I've got a real world asset, so that could be property, or it could be a bond in certificate form. And certainly today, neither of those are on chain. So Mm -hmm. I think firstly, how would I bring those types of assets onto a blockchain through the concept of tokenization? So the first thing I think with, let's take the bond is, How much do I trust the target blockchain to say that I'm going to give up record keeping in my existing relational database that tracks, you know, the the books and records of that bond Mm. and its life cycle? And I think the answer for a lot of big financial institutions is they're not quite ready to give up their existing relational databases or stores. They're willing to enter into a, a kind of a digital twin of that underlying bond. And so it's not fully natively created on the chain through tokenization, but it is represented. And there would be a synchronization of that digital twin back to the existing bond certificate or to the existing database. And whether we like that or not, I think that is a a proof of concept that a lot of financial institutions are comfortable with in the medium term. They want to know well ahead of inscribing everything natively in the future. They wanna know how it works. And I think coming out of 2023, I see a lot of that kind of work going on around the world. Then building on that, I think we're seeing that when I'm inscribing what that underlying bond is in terms of value, more importantly, I'm really interested in its expression of rights management, the governance of that bond, its tenure, and particularly the privileges of key management, who actually has access in the key structure to moving that bond and for what reason. Mm. I think the difference I see here is I would say we will default to looking at traditional legal terms like a, a bearer instrument, you know, a bearer certificate, and we would tokenize a bond as a bearer instrument so we can represent it on chain as a bearer set of scripting codes. And we would wrap that base level bearer script with the rights management, the privileges, the governance, uh, smart contracts. And I think slightly differently to the way that we've seen cryptocurrencies work. That's the way we approach it. Mm -hmm. Further upstream, just to complete the answer, we treat tokenization as a part of the ingestion process. It's just part of the initial stage of workflow. How do I bring an asset on chain? I'll need to tokenize it, get all the rights management and the key management right, represent it properly. But I need to put it then in custody. So we'll need to sit in digital custody in its new tokenized form. And then the second stage for us, once we've done that, is that we have built a set of smart derivative contracts, which are smart legal contracts, that actually represent the life cycle of the trade, all of the default clauses, how we actually uh, manage the trade over its life. Every day, for example, there's maintenance payments to be made on the position that you've entered into. So we would allocate those underlying tokenized custody uh, contracts. They would get called automatically into the life cycle of the trade. So we're removing friction and we're removing the human in the loop increasingly by automating both the workflow of the derivative life cycle itself, but also in the way that we've tokenized the underlying instruments.
2: I mean, that's a really useful, comprehensive answer. I think one of the things that comes to my mind there is that, It's actually not just the blockchain element, right? So many companies, and maybe to the detriment of those companies, they've always put forward products that are 99% blockchain. And maybe that has been the reason why they haven't been so successful. How important then is blockchain in this solution? Does this solution 100% need blockchain? Like I see a lot of talk around RWAs now or real world asset tokenization around the world, and some of them don't use blockchains whatsoever. So it'd be interesting to get your take on this.
1: Yeah, it depends on the blockchain, I think, Alec, but uh, for me, I would firstly say there's a very, very strong argument for using the blockchain for what it was originally uh, intended to be, which is a time-stamping record keeper. So Mm -hmm. if you go back to my long explanation of you and I entering a trade and we have our clearing banks and then we hand off to a clearinghouse and they report the trade to a trade repository, you know, we've got so many actors and intermediaries involved in the life cycle all handing over information, re-keying information, doing their own compliance checks, mm-hmm. well, wouldn't it be beneficial that we've all got one real-time consensus event of when an event has happened in a trade? So mm-hmm. I think in its simplest form, yes, there is huge benefit in bringing a blockchain, a digital ledger technology for, for a time-stamping record keeper into that workflow ecosystem, and that's what we're doing. And I, I caveated, depending on the blockchain, mm-hmm. then I go back to my engineering first principles, certain blockchains, and certainly I believe this of the original Bitcoin protocol, are fundamentally fixed opcodes in their protocol. More importantly for me, they are very equivalent to microcontroller systems that I worked on in my early days as an Mm -hmm. electronics engineer. So I I treat that particular blockchain as a state machine, and that state Mm -hmm. machine is really just controlling the state of the smart contracts, which are just conditional logic contracts. And I always say to anybody, don't get scared about these things. If you've spent any kind of time in Excel, writing if that, this then statements, Mm -hmm. you've already written conditional logic. And so we're talking about those type of conditional logic statements, really interacting with a state machine, which is a public blockchain.
2: Yeah,
0: I love that description of a state machine. I think it's really intuitive, maybe more for the programmers out there, but just this idea of having defined, you know, what state is this in? What is this contract in right now? Is it open? Is this trade open? Is this closed? All this kind of stuff. It makes sense because that can be modeled very easily on a blockchain. One thing I want to pick up on here, and it's something I've noticed you talking about, I think you have a really interesting perspective on this that I'd like you to share, is one thing that people have an issue with when talking about using Bitcoin for applications like this, I think, is the idea of confirmations, right? Because when someone typically uses the blockchain or uses Bitcoin, they see this horrible six confirmations tab that comes up on their exchange, right? That's what people associate with it. Oh, I'm gonna have to wait an hour, six confirmations to, to start using my funds. But is that a problem or a barrier to you in terms of needing the a transaction to be deep in the blockchain before you can use it? Or do you think there's merit in using this kind of what we'd call zero confirmation or zero conf where you accept something as soon as it goes to the network and you have a kind of response or acknowledgement from a miner?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah very insightful as well, Jack. I think, yeah, I, I think when I spent my, my high level answer is we've already chosen a few years ago the Bitcoin protocol, <clears throat> but also linked to that state machine logic and the fixed protocol of that particular blockchain is obviously Bitcoin uses a UTXO system. So the UTXO being the unspent transaction output in in its simplest form in this context, I always think of that as the global digital cash register. Mm -hmm. So I'm always tracking what's coming into the cash register and going out of the cash register. And I can do that ubiquitously for everything that's happening in the way that we're
0: building out the smart contracts i just want to point out maybe for the viewers i think would you agree there's an analogy there between the utxos that you mentioned and coins in your wallet right because what is in your wallet what makes up your balance is likely to be a collection of these different utxos that you own effectively like you would have coins in a wallet in real life absolutely yeah yeah that's a good very good analogy and that that's a very
1: A pertinent one, actually, which is if in real money, if I'm stood in the news agent and I've got £10 in my wallet, which also with children happens very infrequently, and I say to my youngest child, could you go next door and buy us a couple of cups of coffee? The reality is until I break that £10 note and get some change, we can't parallelize the transaction. He can't Mm. go next door to buy the coffee Mm. whilst I'm finishing the purchase of my newspaper. That's something that the double... Ledger system in the UTXO, and there is a parallelism in the UTXO that is profoundly scalable and allows you to uh, scale out all kinds of event management in the system. And that is also very highly attractive in this system. But again, I'm probably going too far here today, but UTXO is a really great record keeper of what has been spent and what has not been spent on a global basis and is doing that in a highly parallelized way. I think that's the simple statement. And I think of it as a global, one single global cash register, one global wallet. The other side of the UTXO when it comes to smart contracts is how you use the UTXO to form functions on the chain and in your smart contract hierarchy. And so I find myself also thinking about the UTXO as as like a stem cell in human biology. You know, when a stem cell is produced, it's natively blank. It can be programmed in the human body to form an ear, to form a heart. And actually the UTXO has the same capability. We've programmed the UTXO to become a private ledger on the public chain. So we can put a corporate account into the private ledger function. Mm. Uh, We can associate to that private ledger their users. In the UTXO function. We can associate their custody to that account. And then we obviously can codify the tokens and we can represent those tokens into the smart contract workflow. So the other side of what's exciting about the Bitcoin scripting language and the UTXO is the way that you can use that UTXO to build your system.
2: Okay. And so what's the advantage of this idea of a a private ledger and treating UTXOs on Bitcoin as a stem cell that can be programmed into anything? Is it an advantage that's specific for the derivatives market or does it apply elsewhere in other industries as well?
1: Uh, I think it applies more or less everywhere on on a public permissionless UTXO uh, blockchain because largely you can see that very native capability as almost a modern day uh, file system. So when I'm encoding that UTXO, I could almost treat that as a virtual data storage bucket, Mm -hmm. uh, equivalent to what happens in in cloud computing today. And so, yeah, I I think that particular part of the chain of of that protocol is universal, Alec. What's obviously important to me is that I'm in highly regulated financial markets. I need to represent Bank A differently to Bank B. I, I need to protect their data and their data management. But more importantly, I have to think about things like sovereign rules. So in, when they're entering certain trades, that might be a trade that their division in Singapore is in, and they're trading against their a firm in New York. And I've got to think about geography into the way that we run those entities on the chain.
2: That makes sense. And like, I, I guess this applies also to things like the idea of maybe green tokens and tracking the lifespan and say, okay, actually, this came from a green miner, which is a boon right now. Everyone's talking about, okay, Bitcoin specifically has this negative connotation with the environmental impact, right? But yeah. there's a lot of Bitcoin miners who are actually saying, well, I actually am 80% green renewable energy. So the idea of associating tokens from conception to these miners and actually saying, well, these are green tokens. I imagine that has a lot of impact as well, a lot of application.
1: It does. Definitely. Yeah. I think increasingly. Well, obviously, f- firstly, I think the last five, six years of the mining industry, we've seen a lot of investment in, you know, highly efficient ASIC machines. But we've also seen the vast majority of the big miners, in particular, purchase in and, and secure very good green power contracts. So when you compare that infrastructure to traditional infrastructure, I think the footprint of uh, transaction processing from a utility throughput point of view compared to other systems. You know, I I think we're going to see a really efficient and very carbon neutral overall story coming from the blockchain networks over the next few years and some great stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think we also see a lot of value in using the techniques I've just described to address the next phase of financial services. We're seeing an increase in, okay, How do I prove providence and ownership of an asset? And if that's particularly something like a very large commercial real estate portfolio, Mm. we're now beginning to see the opportunity to see technologies or industry sectors converge. So if I've Mm
2: -hmm.
1: built a smart building and I've got lots of IoT in my building, and that's a very dynamic data emitting environment, I can actually get all of those IoT sensors to form part of my ESG reporting and start to report how healthy that asset is and inscribe that data into the way I tokenize that building. Therefore, I can use that asset on my balance sheet differently into the future. And that this, the opportunity around this type of transformation for society is going to address some of those things I talked about earlier, which is if I can tokenize assets to effectively create collateral mobility, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to be able to do more. I ease my burden of actually it's just cash on my balance sheet it's actually a lot more than that now
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's a really interesting picture you paint and it definitely resonates with me especially when you start talking about things like carbon i know that carbon credits similarly have this almost double spend problem when it's quite hard to verify and people buy these carbon credits to offset uh, their emissions, but it's hard to know when they've been redeemed, right? And you have a perfect solution sitting there in Bitcoin and blockchain that, that manages this double spend problem very well. You're touching on other industries there as well, which I want to kind of dig into a bit more. Beyond just the derivatives world and the specific use cases you're, <clears throat> you're targeting with Tokenovate, where do you think these concepts can apply in a broader sense in kind of outside other areas in digital financial services, as well as other industries, where do you see the most potential in this technology going forward?
1: Well, obviously, comes uh, some some internal bias, I suppose, when I make these statements. But mm-hmm. I think um, you know boring stuff. But I really believe that there's an overhaul of the way individual and company identity management needs to work. I think we've just got really highly inefficient systems in place today. So whether that's me getting my driving license or getting my passport and largely those are somewhat digital in the fact that the end product is printed digitally (laughs) and my data is held in a database. But I think for all individuals, increasingly, we're being asked more and more to prove our identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly if you're in a business and you're trying to set up a new bank account or you're trying to onboard with a new supplier, you go through a very torturous know your customer, know your business process. So I think that's an area that this technology can bring a lot of benefits to. I do for society, obviously linked to the journey here that we've talked about in carbon, we're involved in the voluntary carbon credit market. We're trying to solve that double count and double spend problem in the way that we tokenize carbon projects. But the workflow here of the next few years is to try and hit some of the targets by 2030 we have got to take a really big step up in our involvement as individual citizens and our roles in companies to try and help those targets be met. Mm -hmm. So I think the concept of a smart citizen wallet and really do you or I today know what our day-to-day carbon footprint is and our choices of whether I go on a bus, a train or use my car and much I've recycled. I think we have got capability in this technology to make our activities a lot more transparent. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're beginning to showcase that to each citizen, we can all make better decisions, better choices. And Uh, so that's linked to the kind of the smart city uh, journey mm -hmm. that a lot of big cities are on around the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I, I think that IoT, smart cities, linked to the energy transition and to net neutrality or net zero, I think those are all interlinked, to be honest, personally. And this technology no. has a profound role to play in all of that.
2: I like those. I mean, me and Jack completely <clears> resonate <throat> with all of those. We spent two episodes speaking on identity and like the idea of Web3 identity and its importance. It's really important for individuals to have privacy and control over the data, but you also need some kind of way to regulate that data between different parties across an ecosystem. IoT is the same. We've had like multiple episodes on that. Those topics are so important. I think one of the things that stands out for me, and I think it's brought to the front of my mind, because we've been talking about decentralized identity and blockchain-based identity for many years now. And this is kind of a wider question for you, Richard, having so much industrial experience and speaking to kind of institutions around the world, is what is the biggest inhibitor? Why is it taking so long for these, not just in TradFi systems, but across all the industries? Why is it taking so long to adopt these killer applications that we've been talking about for so long now?
1: Yeah, it's complicated, Alex. I think, firstly, in my technology career for the couple of decades you introduced me as. I don't think I've actually seen a technology that has been so misunderstood in my lifetime. I think blockchain as a protocol, as a protocol first, as a network second, has taken a very long time to be understood. And in some senses, I think its early incarnation got distorted through the rise of the cryptocurrency journey. And there's a lot of good in the cryptocurrency use cases. I don't necessarily advocate that we need 22,000 cryptocurrency tokens in the world, but I think what it did is acted as a kind of a killer app and forced a lot of new thinking, which is always good in in the journey of innovation. So what I observe certainly in enterprises, it's only in the last uh, few years that enterprise leaders have started to really pay attention to blockchain and begin to understand it. A lot of projects have been private ledger based and Uh, Only probably three years ago did most participants realize that's put into a private database and wasn't getting the benefit of a shared consensus timestamping medium. I think um, there was fear, uncertainty and doubt in enterprise, Mm -hmm. in all sectors that really held off experimentation and adoption. But Mm -hmm. I do think that's changed significantly in the last two years.
0: Yeah, I think misunderstood is definitely the right word for definitely Bitcoin and the kind of slew of new tokens and ideas coming with it and I like your point on yeah lots of this is around speculation you have so many different tokens now 99.5% of them will be absolutely worthless in in a number of years time but it is kind of a forcing function for innovation we find out quite quickly what works and what doesn't and that all plays into adoption and speaking of adoption we've covered a lot of ground today and I I just wanted to make sure I got this take from you before we, we end the show but Obviously, we're now speaking to you just post the the ETF approvals for Bitcoin, right? Now, we've covered this quite extensively. As someone who's working in the kind of financial services, TradFi uh, slash DeFi space, you could say maybe Web 2.5 Finance. How big an event do you think this is? Do you think there's too much hype around this? Or do you think there will be real benefit to Web3 in the crypto industry from what we've seen with these approvals?
1: I think it's an important event in having such big players step towards embracing this form of a digital asset and bring it into traditional financial market structures so that it's a lot more accessible to regular investors. I think that's a pretty important moment in history of this particular technology. I have a problem with it in the fact that it goes against the whole concept of decentralized systems and breaking down the barriers in a completely different way for a new economy. I'm a big believer personally in a value exchange system that is all about producer consumer interacting directly and I th- I'd like to see more producer consumer relationships emerge o- over the years ahead. But there's also fundamentals to look at with these ETFs which is at the end of the day these ETFs are going to be tracking the main asset. And so that main asset is still speculative and very volatile. Yeah. And there's a lot of fundamentals on that particular Bitcoin asset that have not been worked out. You know, we're going to see what happens in the halving very shortly. Mm. Uh, the util- utility value of that particular chain has not been found. And there are diminishing returns for the miners without really finding their new future.
2: Yeah.
1: How much of a safe asset is that to invest in via your ETF? Uh, I, I'm not going to be putting my money there.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned all those topics and much more concisely than <laughs> Jack or I did when <laughs> we spoke about it. But yeah, it's an interesting one. I think we've said overall, it's probably positive because it means more people, more institutional adopters will be pushing towards Web3 generally, hopefully, through this like trickle down effect. But you're right, like we promote utility over speculation always. And I think it's really interesting to have this system that was meant to remove unnecessary intermediaries. One of the biggest milestones was to add an unnecessary intermediary to Bitcoin for it to come to the public limelight. But yeah, I think we completely agree with that, yeah. Richard, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're coming to the end of the show. I mean, this has gone really quickly because I think it's been so interesting for me and Jack. So thanks for that. But in the kind of the final stage of this, we ask all of our guests the same two questions. we like to see how their answers evolve between guests and across time. But if you're ready, I'll ask the first question, which is a nice short one, hopefully. In one sentence, which should be tricky, <laughs> what is Web3 to you?
1: Um, I think Web3 is a signpost Or a brand that represents the journey to the exchange of value internet.
2: Uh, I like that. That's the first time we've had that answer. I think exchange of value internet, which I really like. And I really strongly agree with as well. The next one I'm very excited to hear. So if you could choose anyone alive or any time in history to sit down and discuss Web3 with, who would it be and why?
1: Oh, I think I probably have to go back to Tim Bernards-Lee. I, I think his invention of web 1.0, would. it would be fascinating to have time with him. He's alive, obviously. It would be fascinating to have time with him about his innovation and how he saw society adopt it and use it and what his guidance would be for us now trying to build out the next era of mm. the internet. I, I, that, that would be very interesting and a meaningful conversation for me. Strong. I like that.
0: I can't believe that we haven't had Tim Berners-Lee mentioned yet, actually, in the answer to that question. That is a really obvious one in hindsight, but yeah, it hasn't come up. And yeah, as you you say, because he's got such an interesting take on what's happened to the internet. I think he's very disillusioned with the version of the internet we have today. Fingers crossed, maybe if we're successful enough, he'll come on the show one day and uh, maybe we can arrange a conversation, all of us together. But you know, Richard, just all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a great conversation. I've definitely learned a lot about, about everything you're doing and the financial services space there. And all that remains then is to say thank you to our listeners, wherever you may be. Thank you both. A real pleasure.
2: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web 3,
0: produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3.
2: The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.